Today on the podcast, I sit down with my friend William Oliver, who is a co-founder of In Practice. Now, In Practice is a research service for investors to learn about high-quality companies. Now, they aim to help investors better understand companies by conducting in-depth interviews with former and current employees. Now, they have researched thousands of companies to uncover some commonalities of what makes a high-quality company that can sustain success over time. I mean, that's what What Got You There podcast is all about, right? Uncovering the most important elements and foundational pieces that can help us sustain success over time. Now, that's why I wanted to have Will on the podcast. Now, we dive a lot into what he's learned over the years studying some of the most successful companies, and we also dive into Will's own entrepreneurial journey. So enjoy this podcast with William Oliver. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Will. Welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's, a, it's a great joy. Uh, life, is, life is good. The, the joy is on, is on this end, believe me. Uh, you're someone I, I've gotten to learn from, uh, gotten to explore some interesting things. So I'm so excited to share that with the listeners. But I would love to know, is there a mindset or way that you go about your life that you think has just been incredibly helpful for, for how you've lived these past years? I would say gratitude, cultivating, um, and it it came out of I think I don't know how many years ago now a practice of listing in a, as part of a morning journal practice, answering the question, "What am I grateful for?" Uh, and and as one practices that. You see that there are these recurring patterns in life. Um, so, so really, a, I think a, a sense of, of deep gratitude. Um, that, and then also a, 
an increasing reverence for um for the the mystery of life um, that that um there's there's so many layers to experiences to relationships um, to participating in 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 the realms we all participate in um so i think a certain a, a respect and, and i think a, another side to that mystery would be a respect for um for what we don't know um but uh, yeah, probably gratitude and, and a reverence for for what we don't know. Can you even go further into the mystery of life? Oh my God. Um, could we go further into the mystery of life? I um I, I would say that um it's it's what the Biologist Erwin Chagroff might call the the fertile darkness that that out of what we don't know, um, which is something our culture maybe finds it difficult to talk about. It's it's um and to approach um, that that um that out of this that there's there's an immense fertility in in opening up to the mystery of life um, in, in, and I think a, a corollary of that, you could call it intellectual humility. You could call it um, more of an interest in the questions than the answers, um, more of an interest in finding great questions um, uh, as a way to explore what is an unbelievably, on, on some level, an unbelievably complex system, um, this, this, this system of life. Um, it is, it, it, I mean, we're looking at God knows how many variables at play in even the smallest problem you could identify. Um, and, and I, I think, um, like someone we might both appreciate Ian McGilchrist has certainly awakened, um, an interest I've had for years, or at least helped me verbalize some of the, the, um, the feelings I have about this topic, um, Insofar as an ability to work with the unknown or what we don't know is concerned, working with uh, working at the limits of our understanding, um, and and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into to a conversation around in practice. But just you know how how hard it can be to to build, right? We've been in, in our industry for probably over nine years now, and and as operators, um, as people thinking day in day out about how to build and how to solve problems for people, and and it's it's super hard. Um, it's there, there are still so many unanswered questions and I suppose we'll, we'll always be many unanswered questions or unanswerable questions. Um, and, and, and yet you have to, you know, you got to operate and make decisions and, and bring products to market and, and try to try to be of use, um, within, within the systems in which you operate. How do you end up making those decisions then where there's so much information, it's so complex and you're not exactly sure the right path, but a decision needs to be made. How do you navigate that as an operator? First of all, I, I don't know if we do it particularly well. Humility. Uh, so there's there's a there's a there's a big there's a big disclaimer there, right? Which is we've been um we've been involved um and 
building in practice now for, for just around three years. Um, we've had a, a live product in the market for, for two and a half. Um, how do we, how does one navigate uncertainty? I think, um, there's, there's something around exposure to and reps and patterns and, and what you see from just making probably a lot of mistakes, um, that, that, that certain patterns arise, um, as to how how people behave in, in, well, in our industry, the kind of problems that really matter to people, um, your, your sense or your ability to, to listen to people, to identify these problems and, and to, to work towards solutions. Uh, and I would say over time, um, I have more of an appreciation for the role of intuition, um, for the, that whatever part of our awareness can interface with many more variables than you could ever fit in a spreadsheet. Uh, orders of magnitude more variables than you could fit in into spreadsheets. Um, so you have this tension, um, yeah, between the, the map and the territory, as they'd say. Um, how do you, and, and, and navigating these complex territories. How have you evolved in terms of listening and actually understanding your intuition a bit better? I think awareness practices. Um, it's it's something I I for a long time was deeply distrustful of, um, and I, I think. The way I define intuition now is probably different than I might have a few years ago. Um, that I I have a you know, intuition is a is it is quite a a difficult topic to approach, um, and I think definitions can be really helpful. Um, and and what I'd say is there's a certain when we talk about intuition. Um, there is, there's a certain sense, um, that you can get around a situation through maybe what we could call embodied cognition, um, coming into the body, feelings that arise in situations. Um, and, and I, I have this, we say this a lot. And in practice, we have this, this line, the truth awaits eyes unclouded by longing. Um, that, that if you can come into a, a position where you are a little calmer, a little clearer, um, where you have a sense for, you have a sense of participation in a situation with a quieter mind that, that intuition can actually be quite a reliable way to interface with, with an environment. Now, then of course, as I listen to myself say this, you obviously have you know, people that can operate um, in, in extremely volatile environments. Um, you look at anyone in the military, right? Where, 
There's no, I mean, we have the luxury in our environment of being able to take our time and structure the environment so that we can calm down, where we can, you know, practice embodiment in whatever way. Um, that that certainly there's forms of expert intuition at play in the military. And those just, I suppose, come out of an incredible number of reps um, and, and mistake making. Um, and so you call that me expert pattern recognition. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a challenging topic to explore verbally as well, right? You, you know, you, you have that, you know, these sayings, right? I, I know it when I feel it, you, you know, it, when you see it, you, we, we use this, in our, it's in our vernacular, right? You, um, a gut feeling, right? Well, well, what does it mean? And when is it reliable or not? And it, and it's, it's very hard. Um, and, and, and it certainly isn't right all the time. Um, but I, I do find it's a gateway into um, ways of knowing that are embodied as opposed to linguistic or cognitive, right? If you imagine a sort of layer of, of, of the world as the world is really one continuous system on some level, um, right? You have, um, and, and so... And really, any definition or any way to segment the system is inherently arbitrary. Um, so you and for that, and thank God, because by by defining a system or a subsystem, you bring it into existence. You can manipulate it. You can work with it. So we need, you know, language is a, this amazing tool to um, to bring things to life. Um, and 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 yet there is a there's an awareness that that I think. Um, there's ways of seeing, and, and the person I've seen speak about this most clearly is Ian McGilchrist, um, um, that, that there are ways of seeing and knowing that are, that are nonverbal. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's one hell of a, a sort of door to open. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's, it's it, all this said, it's not enough to have an intuition very often, you have to be able to verbalize it. You have to be able to communicate it. Um, and, and it's in the meeting of both the intuitive and the, the cognitive, um, our ability to, to verbalize, tell stories, relate through language, um, that, that, that it gets really interesting. It's, it's in harnessing intuition and our cognitive faculties that, that you start to be able to operate. I think, um, maybe hopefully reasonably effectively. An extremely interesting topic to explore. I think a few things are just popping out, at least to me, and that's your willingness to explore the unknown, the, the time it takes to develop awareness, to get clear, to even know which doors to enter and go through and peek your head through. And, and it makes me think of something you said to me, and this was around your learning process, which I would love to dive into, and it's vulnerability powers the whole thing. Can you expand on how vulnerability powers the whole thing in context of your learning process? So I guess there's, I would look at it as, first of all, that there's different kinds of learning. Um, that there's, there's maybe forms of learning that may be associated with a you know acquiring a particular skill um then then there may be forms of learning associated with with deeper personal development 
Um, and and I think vulnerability is pretty useful in in both. I think vulnerability, being open about the limitations of your knowledge, frees you up to to ask questions. It it frees you up to. criticism uh, or, or it, it, it it's so so vulnerability and and don't I mean it, it's there, there are it's it's I and mean, I would love to actually think about this with you because I think it is it is quite a complex topic right there are you could argue that there are times when being vulnerable may not be appropriate right? Um, there are times, but ultimately I think when we talk about vulnerability, I mean, this deep sense of, um, or at least the way I, I sort of try to live it is in a, a deep openness to our own limitations and that it is, and through that openness that you actually give, give, you allow oxygen to enter the room that might allow for evolution. Um, that if I'm if I'm unwilling to to be vulnerable, I am I, I inherently closing myself off to opportunities to learn. Um, you, and the deepest opportunities to learn might really be around our our blind spots. What is it that we we can't see? Um, and when I'm unwilling to be vulnerable, I'm I'm could look at it as blocking off the flow of information information that yeah you you brought up two different types of learning there and, and one is around the personal development thinking about yourself at the, at the beginning of this you were talking about having that gratitude journal so i'm actually intrigued by this about some of the things that, that you've done over the years and you shared with me you said important words for me courage patience vulnerability and friendship now i'm curious around the amount of time and thought that went into uncovering those words and what that practice looked like for you. Yeah, I think uh, courage, patience, vulnerability, gratitude, friendship. I think these are, I mean, these are for me, some of the pillars that really it's, it's a lived experience of what, what a, what matters in life um, that, that, that and I suppose we could, we could go through, go through the list. Um, but it's, 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 there's a personal element to this as to how, and what I'm drawn to and how I'd like to live. And, and friendship is a huge part of life um, to me um, that, that the, the privilege of, of being there for others, of witnessing um, for however long um, and for however long you might be walking the path side by side. Um, and I'm I'm almost paraphrasing, I think David White, who's had a, a huge influence on me for for many years now. Um, the, David White, the, the Irish poet. Um, but I think to me, they're the sort of bedrock of, of how, how one might move through life. Um, hopefully learning, hopefully more open, 
hopefully of more use to others. Um, that like we've spoken a little about vulnerability. I think courage is also without courage, as Maya Angelou says, it's very hard to practice any of the other virtues. So um, gratitude we've spoken a little about, uh, just just that thankfulness for for this ex crazy experience of being alive uh, and 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 to have the, the that possibility of participating in the world uh, i'd say that these words are as i've maybe converged on them over time have just for me personally proven to be really important words how did that convergence take place because you you said these are the bedrocks that that you build a a great life off of but there's plenty of people who who haven't ever even gotten to this spot. And so I'm wondering for those listening, how can they get to this place where they, they can really identify what the bedrock of a life they're going after looks like? I I find that it's it's a it's a beautiful but incredibly difficult question. And I'm probably an incredibly unreliable narrator <laughs> in, in this case. I think it it comes through. Probably a lot of you know, failures, self-doubt, self-questioning, um, paths incorrectly taken, um, and then call it an awareness practice, um, whether it's in forms of meditation or yoga or or running long distances. Um, that 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 there are these periods of 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 quietness through which what is really important might or might have more chance of arising, mm. um, and then there's there's but but probably more than that it's just getting things wrong, mm. and 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 maybe noticing um how how we might undervalue things or 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 noticing that we're not capable of doing what we need to do unless one brings courage for or finds some way to to connect with with the uh, with this this energy of courage um finding out through lack of vulnerability mm. that um so you probably say maybe there's a pattern arising of of um a lack of appreciation for the importance of these things and then over the years sort of encountering obstacles and and looking for greater forms of intelligence that I might have had at the time uh, to bring in more intelligence into the system and and there that's where great teachers come in I think why I love your work so much is is your interest in um, in in the great teachers of our time across disciplines uh, we so that we may benefit from from their teachings and the greater intelligence that they could bring into our systems as we as we um bash our heads against walls for for um months or years at a time uh work, working through the same or similar issues until until they help us see another perspective yeah well it, it makes me wonder then because what one of the things i appreciate about what you do will is your ability to to see your blind spots and not only see them but to explore them to get to know them to go deeper right that that's hard it's very hard and so i'm wondering for you 
I, I'm sure there's no easy answer to this, but but how do you actually practice that when you've identified a blind spot of yours? What does that process look like? Maybe we could take a, um, I'm thinking of what a, what a good example of this might be to make this concrete. Um, I think we could take a very personal experience of mine that's been a thread throughout my career that I feel like I've only resolved more recently, which, which was an, an attachment I had an, an, a really significant blind spot that impacted our business uh, in the way that we allocated resources. Um, in, so, so something material to, in practice was a, an attachment I had to this idea of being a financial analyst. And I think it came from ideas that I had of, of success, um, of, of um, you know, a degree of social conditioning from my background. Um, and, and, um, and I think a, a, a process over years of letting go of that, uh, and, and fully embracing, I think, a more authenticity in, in, in letting go of, um, and I think, so working through that, um, I feel like stillness really helps. Um, putting yourself in, there's, a, I guess, a couple of couple of layers to it. Um, one is putting my putting myself in situations where I was forced to confront this tension in my character and and in my um, in the way I saw myself. Um, what what we talk about is you know liking. I, I like myself to like something. Right, that that's there's, there's an element of that coming out of an ego structure, the story of me. Right, there was the story of Will, and we and and the story is real to the extent you invest in it. Um, that that this blind and why is it so hard to talk about blind spots? Because we're sensitive to them, mm. and and if you'd pointed this out a few years ago, I would have found ways to 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 shift the topic of conversation mm. or to try to prove to you that I was that and. So blind spots, you know, we're, we're we're very good at spotting them in others, but actually approaching them and and uh, thoughtfully um, approaching them ourselves can can be can be very hard and and that's where for me over the years these practices call it a call it an awareness practice um, forms of meditation forms of movement forms of exercise that loosen the grip of, of what I like, what I'd like to be, um, what I like to say about myself, sort of any kind of practice that allows for a slight loosening of that grip and, and, and a form of awareness that called more embodied, you could call it less cognitive. Um, you could, and you could go into these places. I mean, there's all sorts of resources out there to, to, to cultivate these forms of awareness. I think there's a renaissance of a huge amount of interest in this um, in everything from, you know, you have people talk about all, all forms of psychology, 
movement practices. Um, the whole psychedelic renaissance is very much about this. How do I, how do I learn to, to, to connect with deeper authenticity? How do I learn to see the patterns of mind, the mechanics of mind, um, the way in which we're taken over by our own stories and our own languages of our language about who we are, um, and, and connect with, with something deeper, um, that, that, that's harder to put your finger on, maybe harder to verbalize, but, but you feel it and, and you know what you love. And, and, and I think that's, um, so this self-definition that I had of, or, or this sort of seeing myself as, as really, um, this this desire to 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 be an analyst to see myself as an analyst um and falling short of that noticing that that there's certain things that i'm fundamentally not interested in um that that i've you know never managed to to push myself into deep study of 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 accounting right and 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 and, and i think through these 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 awareness practices Gradually letting go of um, maybe building a new frame of reference around a, a sort of call it a, a greater space from which to operate and, and observe my tendencies uh, and a space from which it's it's far easier to just to call bullshit um, where there's because there's less attachment in the story um, that that. There's uh it's it's a little easier to see the patterns, notice them and and well and move on. Um, and I think that that sort of letting go process of this of what I thought I should be opened up the door now, I feel, for a for an immensely creative period that that I'm in, that that the business is in, um, where where organizationally we are so much better set up to, to do what we want to do as a result of me in, in part uh, it's certainly helped letting go of um of my attachments uh, to, to this to this persona um so we're and for me really it's opened up a gateway into um into different ways of spending my time and into i think a, a deep love for for the practice of of well i'll pause there this is just beautiful one of the things i i love is is how you verbalized the gripping because it is you you feel that internal grip and i like what you said is is once you slowly through awareness practice loosen that grip it opens you up you become more expansive and i i just want to add some clarity around this just make sure I'm clear on this. So essentially you had built your, your life and your structure around thinking you were a financial analyst because to outside people and things, that's what you wanted to appear as, correct? Well, that, that I should be something should be, like that. And I felt like a terrible one, Yeah, you but, know, in that there's only so much you can disconnect yourself from. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and when you finally drew the awareness around that and got comfortable enough to loosen that grip, it then put you and the company in a position to tap into your genius, into your strengths, and you became more expansive. Is that correct? I, I would say so. And I think we're, 
we're really just as an organization starting to open up to that possibility. Um, as opposed to, I think the the um, when when you have someone that's not behaving out of authenticity, that's not really connected to their deepest strengths, you um, you're really losing a lot of horsepower. You're losing a lot of energy. You're um, so it can be very difficult to. to and I think I, I credit my business partner for a huge amount of patience in that regard. Um, that 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 it's uh it's it's it can be very difficult to work with people that are that are disconnected or people with huge blind spots especially if those blind spots relate to i mean the organization i i have um a friend that says you know your, your blind spots become the organization's blind spots mm. over time uh, as a leader um so so these things are deeply consequential and and for us it really influenced the way we we spent our time um the way i spent my time and um, and it's unlocked a lot of energy for us. Yeah, I'm spending time here because, like you just said, it's deeply consequential. And through some of the things like you mentioned, um, if you've seen a loved one, a friend, or just a coworker who's operating from this space, it's not only the energy drain on them, it's the energy drain on everyone else and the organization. And I I'm sure most of us have probably felt that at some point in time where we're doing these things that aren't in authentic alignment. And then when you do those things that truly tap into your core, it, it's a beautiful thing. And life becomes more free flowing. Like you you feel like you're being pulled through life as be, being opposed to push. That's, that's why I just wanted to, to spend a little bit more time there because the importance of this and the beauty you see on the other side of this, when you start doing things that are in deep alignment, uh, that's when it becomes a win-win for everyone. And I know this is something you think about, win-win um, type relationships, win-win type opportunities. Um, so I just wanted to spend some time there. Who would you love just to be able to study? I'd probably say Jim Sinegal. I, I would say that a lot of the virtues that we seek to practice are he he really lived them and and lived them at some scale too um it's it's that that costco is a big business and and it's a business that operates in in the public markets with all the pressure that comes along with that and and what cynical was i mean everything you, you, you speak to people who worked around him uh, his his leadership aptitudes, his interest in in the development of of those that he worked with, um, his I think a lot of people see him as a father figure within within Costco. Um, that there's, you know, in other words, a and in 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 the most beautiful sense of someone that was deeply interested in your development, um, combined then with a ruthless focus on multi party win win and. And a sense that shareholders would be taken care of if you take care of employees and customers and suppliers. And that if they're all winning, um, then, then you have something really, that, I mean, do you have a beautiful outcome for shareholders over time? Um, and and that, I think that, that model of doing business is inherently, it, it, 
is towards the more durable patterns that that I think you can see in business, um, where where really profits are an an output of a system. Hmm. When you start optimizing for, and Tom Morgan's written beautifully on this on the subjects of Slack and Moloch and and the perils of optimizing for abstract variables um, versus the maybe a system that might be run by someone like Jim Sinegal, namely Costco, that's focused on very real interest in the in 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 a customer doing well and a customer getting a great value proposition, getting a quality value proposition at a phenomenal price. Um and and so there's there's that that reality. There's something you look at the system like Costco that's really optimizing for customer success and and the well-being you see how much you probably and jeff bezos understood this also i think pretty well um it seems pretty early on um, that there was a lot to learn from costco and and um yeah so i think it was someone someone like pr- probably jim cynical to 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 just hear him tell stories about how you, especially in this cultural environment where there is so much more focus on form over substance, on outputs over, regardless of the inputs, um, you have someone that that is was able to to lead large numbers of people, contribute to their flourishing within the organization, share the benefits of scale with a lot of people, and build a yeah a couple hundred billion dollar business. Um, it's 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 incredible why is this so hard? Like, you know, I know it's complex, but if you think about the the principles you've continued to hit on again, simplicity, win-win, long-term thinking, I'm just wondering, now you've analyzed so many thousands, why is this, why are these so difficult to embody? It's, um... I had a coach years ago that that um, was helping me work through a situation where I was at odds with the um, the culture of the business I was working in, and and of course I felt like my behavior was very sane um, at the time that I was clear on my principles and was, was at odds with with the business I was working for, and and my coach at the time called me and he was like. So, so you're the island of sanity. Do you know what happens to islands of sanity? They get washed away. Hmm. And, and that's to say that there's, it's, it's very hard when you have these cultural paradigms, right, around, well, shareholder value maximization. Um, you, you have a cultural environment that um that tends to really struggle to see the whole um it, where where there's there's a distrust of an intuitive appreciation for the fact that we are part of a system and that that if you're doing well at someone's expense that that's that, that can't last that long we we kind of get we we might forget that um and i think it's you have to go back i mean now you're getting into the sort of history of ideas and and the ebbs and flows of ideas that dominate societies. 
and um, and I think it, as you you sort of turn the dial back a few hundred years, um, you, the, the the this the roots of our current environment are really sort of emerge in the Enlightenment era um, of of a um, a view that came out of the physics at the time um, of of a of the world as machine. And, and that world as machine is very seductive to our rational faculties because it means that if I could take it apart, I can understand exactly how it works. And it's a view that, that one of the implications of this view is that the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. And, and that's just something that I just don't think is true. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That, that you could break down a human body, but you have something that's aware and conscious and capable of loving and appreciating beauty. And, you know, and that's where I, I think it, I mean, today in, in cognitive psychology, that you have this hard problem of consciousness. No one can locate awareness or even the ego within the structure of the brain that we have guesses, but, but it's, it's, um, and so you have this, this emergence of a worldview that, that also is in a subject object relationship with the world, with nature. Um, that that a lot of um, older ideas about uh, that that are rooted in a a very fuzzy boundary between ourselves and nature, between ourselves and fellow man, between ourselves and the system, more or less a porous boundary. Um, that that we and it so 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 maybe to pull on that thread a little bit. You have this sort of Enlightenment era, rational, technical worldview emerging, which is also not to say that it's also a beautiful thing. It allows for the industrial revolution. It allows for the harnessing of nature's power, uh, but it's it's somewhat disembedded from the whole. It's somewhat disembedded um, from our intuition, from our participation in, in something larger. Um, and again, that's not even to, to, to talk about it in, or to suggest it in, in, in a religious context that, that there's maybe back to where we started today, we we're talking about the mystery of what we don't know, um, that, that there's, so, so it, it doesn't, you know, this sense of wholeness and participating in something much larger than ourselves. Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't even associate it with necessarily a religious worldview. Um, I'd, I'd suggest that that in an era where our ways of seeing and knowing are, are embedded in this, these sort of machine world values that, that and this is, it's, it's so interesting. If you look at Berkshire in this context with multi-party win-win and, and your Alleghenies and your Markels and your um, Constellation softwares um, that, that a number of businesses have done incredibly well by bucking these trends. So that, that's very interesting in itself. But I think you have to come out of, you look at the leaders of these businesses, that they're coming out of an authenticity and a connection to the world. And Munger is incredible. And, and I'm, um, I mean, an, an incredible person to study in this regard in that he's just intuitively a systems thinker. Or maybe, and I would say, I don't want to overstretch that. I'm, I, I don't know how, 
you know, it seems that his thinking's evolved over time. Um, but certainly as you get into the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s, that that his mind just naturally thinks in systems, deeply understands reciprocity, deeply understands that the, the, the essential nature of wish of win-win, if anything's going to last a long time. Um, so so to your question, why why is this um why is this so hard? I think you have to be grounded in a different way of seeing things that's not culturally common. And, and you have to be able to carry that view into society, meet society, and and rally people that that might be inclined to see things in that way. And, and people, I think, can be, once you see how well this stuff works, it becomes very interesting and it becomes hard to do things in it in in any other way which is what's 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 kind of fun about it absolutely well i hope this conversation becomes a rallying cry so, something I, i'm intrigued by is the amount of interviews you've conducted the amount of companies you've studied what companies for you have been most memorable but also foundational for how you approach business I would start with a private business called Aldi, which you may, I don't know if you've shopped at Aldi before. I have not. I'm, or, I'm, well, I'm well aware of it. Are you a, are you a customer at Costco? So my wife finds this funny. So when my wife and I first started dated, dating, uh, I said, you have to go to my favorite store, which ended up being Costco. Long, long time executive member. Believe me. I, uh, I preach at the altar of Costco. <laughs> Huge so Costco if you like fan. Costco, you're you'd like Aldi. Okay. <laughs> right. And um from a business that emerged out of um out of post-war Germany, um run by for a, a good chunk of, of its existence, um, a couple of brothers uh who who have built one of the largest organizations, one of the largest retail businesses in the world, sort of 100 billion plus sales. This is a huge business. Um, and and there's, there's, there's a lot to like about this business um, in, in its appreciation for simplicity. Um, that varies. So limited skew count. Um, they drive huge amounts of volume through limited SKUs, which gives them tons of buying power. They pass on the benefits of that buying power to customers. Um, they are extremely focused. They have lower, lower gross margins than their peers. Um, it's, it's really the business model design is, is beautiful in, in many ways. Um, that they, they, you, you back to our, what we were talking about with multi-party win-win that you have customers, uh, who, who are, offered high high quality produce at at the best price in the market um, that you have suppliers that benefit from very long-term relationships long-term contracts um, a, a simplicity in dealing with Aldi you don't have to buy your your Aldi buyer tickets to Wimbledon as you as you might do or, or tickets I guess in, in the US the example might be to, to some you know football game. Um, that the, the whole favor currying and complexity in dealing with large retailers, uh, mainstream retailers doesn't exist. You know who you're calling, 
You know what they want. There's a clear set of performance criteria. If you do well, the benefits are shared. Um, and 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 they've so they've managed. I mean, to to very practically in the UK, they've gone from no market share to I'm not on top of the latest numbers, but it's probably around between Aldi and Lidl, probably creeping up to twenty percent of the market. In a mature market, this is an, this is incredible, right? This is this is back to blind spots and the blind spots of the incumbents. And I, I believe you came across an interview with Carl Martin, who who we've spoken to in detail, who was a senior commercial executive at ASDA, one of the mainstream incumbent retailers, who talks about blind spots at ASDA and how the industry just could not see Aldi as a relevant force. Like this is, I mean, this somewhat mind blowing. Is you have this. And this and this happens time and time again. Like certainly in the Aldi story of being radically underestimated, completely dismissed by the industry incumbents. The UK food retail market is—I mean—you're dealing with serious businesses in the space, right? And and you know Tesco is a world-class retailer, and they really missed missed the boat on on this on this business. Um, so Aldi must probably has close to ten percent market share in the UK. Uh, from from zero in 1989, uh, and so that there you have then. I mean, to illustrate and just to think about those timescales, the, the discounters are willing to operate over these extended time horizons, so they can sink a lot of money into a market without without any returns for for years and sometimes decades. If they think there's a long term possibility of a profitable operation in the country. And, and and to illustrate that, um, it was a story relayed to me by Paul Foley, who was the former CEO of Aldi in the UK uh, from the early 2000s, I think, till till the financial crisis. And and so Paul is traveling back to headquarters, and and the business is growing like crazy. It's almost like an emerging market business in, in the UK, right? Or emerging market growth, sort of like for likes, you know, this business is growing at what, 10, 15% um, like for like sales, uh, which, which are just crazy numbers in in the UK market, which is a relatively mature market. So so they can't find stores and they can't, they're, they're you know, I mean, it's the business is exploding, and they're they're looking for sites, and and so Paul goes back to HQ, and and he's speaking to Hans Albrecht, one of the two brothers that was responsible for 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 oversight of the UK market, Aldi Süd, and and he tells Hans, you know, if we were to make some compromises on the sites that we picked, we could grow a lot faster. And and Hans's response to Paul was, Paul. Ich kann dreimal am Tag essen, nicht vier. In other words, or in English, I can eat three meals a day, not four. And and that I feel like these, the essence of Aldi, you have patience combined with customer centricity, combined with with scale economics shared. Um, combined with a another way in the which the business is structured is very interesting, which is it, unlike most large retailers who are optimized for sales growth, Aldi, you get none of the, no, no congratulations for sales growth unless you've got your costs under control. 
So the first principle is keep costs low. And that's heralded as you, know, you, you get huge amount of praise. And, and I, I suppose backed up with hard incentives for managing your costs effectively and finding ways to take costs out of the business. And then comes sales growth. Because if you take cost out and you can give that cost back to the customer. Um, so, so Ivy is a business that, that, um, that I think, I mean, there's, there's a number of businesses that, that I love. I think there's, um, you know, Costco and under, under Jin Senegal's leadership, um, and, and to today, um, is, is under Craig's leadership is a, is another phenomenal business, um, and I, I wonder if, you know, any, I'm, I'm trying to think of if there are any other principles at play that, that we've explored through the, through Aldi as a, as a case study that, um, I probably, probably reveal a, a, um, for whatever reason, I think a lot of my favorite businesses are retailers. Um, but it, there's, there's then, you know, operations like, um, Constellation Software, under Mark Leonard's leader, leadership or Transdime, um, uh, led I think until reasonably recently by Nick Howley, um, that you have, you have, I mean, yeah, we we could dive into that, but I wonder you you know tell me what what's what's really interesting here. I think it's well, I, I appreciate so much how you think about the businesses you're looking at. We're, we're going to round this out in a minute, but. It's it's clear the the depth you've gone to on so many of these topics. I see them the massive bookshelf behind you. You and I have discussed multiple books in the past. I, I would love to leave the listeners though with a, a few recommendations from you, um, as as hopefully a rallying cry to see things differently and step outside the system. And I'm hoping you can provide recommendations um, in, in terms of excellent business books that have influenced how you think about business and how you operate in practice, um, any recommendations around great founders or operators, those books, and the final type of recommendations would be to get a better grasp on systems thinking. So we've got business, we've got founders or operators, and then we've got systems thinking any books that come to mind for you within those categories. Um, so founders on the founders, I'd offer the, the Patagonia founders autobiography, let my people go surfing. Uh, Yvon Chouinard is a very interesting guy um has created a lot of value over over a few decades um and um calls himself an accidental businessman hmm. builds phenomenal has built um, good products i i use the products i like them i um there's there's quality. Um, it's it's you know it's a, it's expensive, but but it's so so I think you you have you know, very practically he's built something real that that works um, and 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 that's that's pretty aware of its footprint 
I think ecologically, and there's all sorts of questions you could ask about that, and it, it's it's it gets turns into a more compli complicated conversation. Um, but but let my people go surfing is a, is a great story of um, of someone building things that he wanted and needed, and and providing an environment for for people that were also so inclined to build with him and to flourish with him, and and to produce happy customers. Um, so, so I think Schwinar is a, is a really interesting guy. I'd also say D Hawk's one from many. Uh, and I know we, we, we share an interest in Absolutely. D Hawk. Yep. Um, I, I, I think that that's a whole nother rabbit hole that that's just endlessly fascinating in, in the visa story, in his worldview, in, um, I mean, he's, you know, for me on the, on the level of operates on the level of, of someone like Charlie Munger, mm. uh, in his appreciation for, for the fundamentals of, of, of systems thinking, um, and, and is also a doer. Um, so, so there's, there's, but there's a real, in D Hawk, you have someone that's very grounded in, I think there's something fractal to great organizations where the smallest part contains the largest part. You see this in businesses like Transdime, Constellation Software. Um, you, you have this aliveness um, of the principles of the business in, in the smallest unit. Um, and, and so, but being conscious of time, no, I think do you, do you have an example of that, of it being present in the smallest, but also the largest elements of the business? I think the way he interacted with people um, is is um, this this vision. I mean, I guess what's what's incredible about the visa story is in the cultural environment Dehawk was operating in, organizing collaboration out of out of a group of organizations and institutions that were, were really not particularly inclined to collaborate, um, that there's a genius in harnessing, and maybe this is more to the point, that there's this genius in harnessing, and, and I'll tie it back to fractals, that there's a genius in harnessing competition in service of collaboration and cooperation at a larger scale. And this is what's so beautiful about the visa story that I think is, is applicable, uh, is a really useful model it is this idea of competition in service of cooperation at a larger scale that you're you're honoring competitive instincts on an individual and organizational level and you're aligning people with a bit bigger prize hmm. so you're putting the genius of creativity in the form of you know competition and creativity i think really go together in beautiful ways that you're harnessing that energy in service of somewhere we can all go together where there's an even bigger prize right? Through, through coordination. Um, that's how our body works. That's how our cells work. That we have different systems in our own bodies actually competing for bandwidth um, that, that produces an organism uh, that, that, that functions more than if we just had a series of separate systems. And, and to get into this, I mean, I, I guess that sort of naturally leads us to to what I have on my desk here, the, the Systems View of Life book by Fritjof Capra, um, Danella Meadows, Thinking in Systems, 
Um, great operators also tend to inherently, I think, think in, in systems, the ones that, or maybe the, just the ones that we've been drawn to. I'm sure there's you know plenty of great operators that maybe don't see things that way, but but I, I we're certainly drawn to to operators that do, and and they tend to yeah build really high functioning systems where where there's there's a lot of flourishing uh, among 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 all stakeholders. Uh, so so yeah, I guess those are the, the Danello Meadows is I guess the classic systems thinking book. Um, very cool um and and yeah and all this is really you know looking at 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 what patterns arise in nature and and in and in organizational structures arising from human activity um and then finally you were asking about um business books um i think it, it's it's not necessarily a business book, but for me has had probably the most impact on the way I think about, or a lot of impact in the way I think about business is, um, is Ian McGilchrist's work around the, the hemispheres and, and tying um, intuitions that people have had and over millennia to to their neurological correlates and looking at at the the, the structure of the brain um, and and the way in which our right and left hemispheres compete and collaborate um, and and the ways in which the hemispheres are associated with ways of seeing that we have spoken about a little bit today of a more a left hemisphere that is more rational technical analytical. It language lateralizes to the left hemisphere, um, uh, a tool to manipulate the world, namely um, uh, language that is, and and in a right hemisphere that's more comfortable with the implicit, that sees the bigger picture, um, that that um, that is comfortable in in nonverbal realm, realms, um, but there really is that tendency to. Well, it's it's also where you might. Um, relate what we were speaking about around intuition to um, that there's, there's these two ways of seeing that. And I think the big mistake people make is, well, I'm more this or more that you want both. Yeah. And you want, if we're going to build systems that really last, that, that also mirror the patterns of nature in which competition is put in into service of cooperation on, on a larger scale um, that, that we need and McGilchrist talks about, I think one of the takeaways from the book is this, what he calls right, left, right, that you start and in this, I think it probably would have been much more interesting to talk about in the context of learning processes that we were speaking about earlier, uh, or, or maybe at least as interesting as what we spoke about is starting with a childlike um, openness and vulnerability to something new that we're looking at or learning you then move to the left hemisphere. So that's right hemisphere, openness, tolerance for ambiguity, deep curiosity, deep vulnerability, um, moving to the left hemisphere where you deconstruct and break down the components as far as you can see them, label the system, bring it into existence through labeling, um, identify the components, and then shift back to the right hemisphere 
where, where you might have a chance at what's called the, the simplicity on the other side of complexity. You, you might have a, a sense of the whole, but also an, an ability to navigate the intricacies of the whole very practically and communicate what you're doing and maybe rally people along a cause or along with the cause. Um, and certainly you'd want to do that if you're otherwise, I mean, if you're pure let, right hemisphere, I think you'd, you'd end up on a mountain or in a cabin somewhere, um, just just saturated in, in, in bliss, um, that, that there's something about being in the world that requires both hemispheres working collaboratively, but in service of, and that's where McGilchrist in his work, and I'd really recommend his book, The Matter With Things, he's emphatic about both ways of seeing really mattering, but the one matters a little bit more. And that's that sense of participating in the whole, in, in something that's a little big, bigger than just ourselves. The system of nature, maybe there, but 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 I would love actually to to add some context into in practice. And can can you talk just about the origin story of in practice and what you're doing there? Absolutely, uh, very gladly. So, Will and I met um, probably around seven years ago now, um, six seven years ago, at a both relatively early into our careers uh, in in business and finance uh, i was involved at um, at a company at the time called third bridge which is a primary research provider so referred to as an expert network uh, whose business is quite simple it's connecting those seeking knowledge from the territory to those in the territory so operators for the most part and then they'll they'll do a range of other things and connect you to politicians and but but really you have big big consumers of these services on the one hand uh, consulting firms private equity funds hedge funds some corporates corporate M&A teams and they work with these service providers to get direct insights from the field and so you have it's around a 3 billion dollar industry i i fell into it out of university with um, with this uh, a, a prospect at the time, I couldn't quite understand and couldn't believe existed. But I, they were this this expert network. Third Bridge was building a content business, uh, where I was given the opportunity uh, to interview operators and spend my spend my time and my week reading about businesses, uh, identifying businesses to first of all to study that might be relevant to our to our customer base at the time at Third Bridge. Uh, and to go out and learn about these businesses and interview those that built them. Uh, so, so the business that we're in is is really quite a. It's quite a simple one. You're you're connecting people uh, with with um, with operators that can help them better understand the territory. Um, you can use these services at different stages in your research. There's a whole bunch of nuance that if if it's relevant, we can get into, but. Or if it's interesting, but but fundamentally, Will and I ended up for a number of years involved with Third Bridge, uh, building a content business there, and and out of that experience, um, I think got a sense that that the kind of work that we were doing, we'd like to do for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. 
that, that this kind of work, studying businesses, um, understanding, I think we studied a lot of awful companies in our first year, spent a lot of time looking at you know, European high yield and distress credit and a lot of private equity roll-ups gone wrong. Um, but but over time, I think converged around this interest in quality, in 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 like what lasts a long time in business, what does really well over extended periods of time for all stakeholders, where um where shareholders are doing well, but but that's really an outcome of everyone else doing well. Um, so so you know, we've developed, I think, it, an interest in certain kinds of companies over time. You could call them um, quality companies in some ways or stru structurally advantaged business models um, and, and businesses embedded in 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 a multi-party win-win um type type of setup and and so there berkshire has been and 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 munger and buffett have been i think huge influences on the way we think uh that that they've been practicing this for a very long time um and uh and so in practice is really today to 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 be very concrete about it we serve fundamental long-term public market investors we help them with really two core products. Um, one is an interview library focused on quality businesses. Uh, the other is a partnership program where for the part of the work that these funds wish to do either in public or in private, we help them source executives. Um, and, and, and really not just any executive, but the best possible executive, the right executive. Uh, and I think what's allowed us to build what we built so far, uh, we, can, we can get into that, uh, but I think it's the blind spots of the industry have, have left oxygen for us to operate in. Um, and so while it may seem like we have, have a lot of chutzpah, you know, in, in, as, as an operator, our size in this space, um, in what is a relatively mature market, um, th there are some really interesting blind spots on an industry level that's created opportunities uh, for us to then, I think, build something that that's relevant to a, and I would say, a, a niche audience within the industry that we operated, within the investment industry. Um, so these are very long-term, quality-focused investors uh, in, in, in public businesses. Well, to long-term thinking... You, you mentioned at the beginning of that saying you and Will identified something that you could see yourself doing for your life. There's that long-term thinking, that mindset's already embedded and in place, and that allows you to operate and make different types of decisions than someone who's saying, hey, this is a three to five year, year thing before we're getting acquired. W one of the, the beautiful things, I think, one of the, the big advantages you have is, is not only do you have that entrepreneurial mindset where you've had to actually operate a business, so many lessons there, uh, I want to touch on some, but you've also studied thousands, if not tens of thousands of businesses. You've studied bad business, you've studied great business. And I'm wondering for you, specifically to what you're building at in practice, what are those foundational type principles, practices that you've identified from the great businesses that you've studied that you've built the bedrock of IP on? So 
think a lot of it starts quite simply with what would we want ourselves to consume? Isn't that such a beautiful what? question? So many people skip over. <laughs> it's it's um <laughs> it's very interesting how a lot of people can invest in businesses and never never test the product or or I, I find that fascinating, right? It's um it, it we have we start with this intimate what would we want for ourselves? And and Will and I have slightly different, you know, different needs, different preferences, different habits. Um uh, and 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 there's this it would be a Venn diagram of our interests, so there's a good deal of overlap. Um, but we also have, in some sense, um, um, so so I think thinking about what is it that we are interested in. For Will, it is it is access to experts today. As as a as an investor, um, he is looking to build a portfolio of the highest quality businesses. Uh, he could possibly participate in over extended periods of time. On my side, it's really an interesting organizational philosophy in community-based forms of learning, um, of um, of peer-based learning. Um, but but really, there is this this interest that unites us both, which is. What are the you could look you could frame phrase it in a number of ways. One way might be what are the what are the greatest companies in the world? And can we can we be thoughtful about what great means? Um that that's probably uh that that that's really at the heart of what we're doing. And so from there you start thinking about well, who might be providing these services? We happen to work like one reason we were drawn to Third Bridge and working at Third Bridge was because we were we were tasked with building a product that that we were I think, directly involved in. Um, yeah, we we were we were big users of the service ourselves. You know the reasons we'd look at certain companies, and and as our career evolved, I think we've had much more choice as to what we spend our time studying. Um, but there, there was this, um, and I think there really was a shift, like taking responsibility for our own business as we left Third Bridge, um, having a blank slate to build off, because um, there were a number of things to optimize for within that sort of more mature company context. As we left that and were given free reign after a few thousand reps of running interviews, and a sense for how you might have a quality conversation and, and also a sense intimately for how poorly these services are used, that there's a major disclaimer in our, and I think it, it's beyond, it, it transcends really the expert network industry to all forms of expert knowledge, right? That we so often defer to experts. Um, it's so easy and we're drowning in all this knowledge and, 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 and really saturated with, with, with just endless amounts of information from a lot of really thoughtful people. And so learning how to navigate that landscape and really through mostly, you know, just making mistakes and overvaluing information and getting lost in webs of, you know, of opinions, um, getting lost in, it's so easy to cr create a maze for yourself, you know, go out. And if you're not, if you haven't grounded yourself, in a set of first principles through much which to which you might look at a system speaking to 30 20 30 experts can be an immensely confusing and, and problematic um experience so 
So I think we, um, yeah, I, I might pause there and if there's well, anything you'd like me to draw out of that. Yeah, I would, I would love if you draw out just the first principles you specifically are operating off of when conducting an interview or studying one of these businesses. Yeah, so so the first principles, um, and maybe I could, so you were asking about in practice a little bit, so we can we can sort of write, maybe maybe talk a little bit more about that, and then we can get into specifically some of the principles around dialogue and having conversation and the the art of conversation. And I think for in practice, there is this um, there is eating your own cooking and and building something that that we ourselves would want to use. Um, there is a um over time i think we we've we've developed an appreciation for high quality low price businesses um we've developed an appreciation for businesses that get better as they get bigger through sharing the benefits of scale with their customers so i think that's informed the way we've designed the business model as a content business powered by a part, a group of partners um, that that is doing part of their learning in public. Uh, so the more partners we bring on, the more value, the more the more interviews we publish, uh, uh, the the more provided we bring on great partners. Right. So a lot of it, we've we've really been. I think principles. Maybe a principle here is just patience. Is I don't think you would build this business in this way if you had to drive some astronomical or, or VC type returns in a couple of years, um, we, we've taken a relatively long-term view. So I've been able to be very patient in terms of who we work with to make sure that what we're publishing is extremely high quality. Um, and, and then we've offered things at a price that around 400 US dollars a year, which is close to probably 10 times or more cheaper than, than, the pricing of a comparable offering. Um, now, now for just importantly to in this context, you have our competitors publishing vastly more um, interviews. Uh, so you have this. If you imagine, you've got in practice as a sort of little boutique um, or niche offering in a market. Where you have your businesses like you know, phenomenal businesses like uh, Tegas, um, which is I think a very interesting business model. Our former employer, Third Bridge, and a number of other expert network providers um, that are really focusing on on driving volume through their platforms, um, sort of the um, and and then you have in practice focused on quality over quantity and. And, and that, that so that's back to the principles. You have patience. Um, you have eating your own cooking. You have um, you have a a pricing architecture that's that's um, that's high quality, low price. And um, and it remains to be seen. I mean, that you know, the, this is this story is just beginning, right? Can we actually make this work? Um, does it? Does it? Um, it, it, there's so many questions we could explore as to you know these tensions in the business model. I mean, first of all, you have this incredible problem, which is, you know, we're, we're offering. You could to take to take a metaphor. 
you might say we're we're bringing a fine dining experience into the market at McDonald's pricing and 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 can't expect people to understand that right that for the for the core content subscription that that we're focusing on really a subset of the public market universe we are we are working with a group of experienced partners so professional investors experienced professional investors supported by best practice in primary research and some of the things that we can talk about a little later maybe around around the principles that go into conducting the underlying work um, but this is, I think, confused a lot of people. And one thing we'll hear is they can't be possible, can't possibly be offering quality at this price. Who are these guys? It makes no sense. If this was good, they'd be charging five times as much. And and that's 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 quite a difficult problem to work with. And and I think has led as another one of our blind spots is around storytelling. Will and I have really been. I think much more comfortable with letting the work and, and the underlying product do the talking, but that's, you know, that, that to continue the restaurant metaphor, that's led to the queue outside of the restaurant, you know, being, being reasonably small, right. That there's, you know, we're dealing with it, with a business that's, um, but, but I think it's okay because we, we, we've, we've set this up in a way where we have time. We've, um, we, we have time to do this well, um, but but there is this element of storytelling, a complexity there, and an appreciation for storytelling um, that I think is is growing within us um, to be able to explain this business model um, that that's grounded in the principles of um, of of very high quality at a at an excellent price, um, and and so there's nuances to that that we could explore. But I think for the purposes of our conversation now, those are really the sort of um i think the other the other another just such a great principle um is is around empathy is around and it's sort of rooted in this idea of eating your own cooking and building something that you yourself want um but but it's 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 a rich vein to tap into um just putting yourself in the shoes of every stakeholder you have and and looking at what great looks like for them and then reverse engineering from there. So without and 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 really starting with that and not so much starting with you know you you could often get into that kind of thinking but out of out of your own limitations or out of what you like or out of what the organization is set up to do. Mm. What are we ready to do? What is possible? What where's the path of, you know, what, versus that can I really unclutter myself, unclutter my mind, free myself up to really deeply get into the shoes of, of as Steve Blank likes to say, that there's no facts inside the building. Um, that, that you've got to get out there again and again and again. And I think in our in our situation, it's we're fortunate in that we are we're and especially Will is really driving product development um, as an investor. And, and an in-house representative of customers, but then there's a whole range of preferences. So it's it's getting out into the world and also into the minds of um, the operators that we work with. This is another, I mean, you'd be amazed that the blind spots in the expert network industry, are, are, with the way the industry is structured right now in this very volume-driven transactional business model, or, or I suppose culture at the major operators, um, they, they, they tend to treat experts very transactionally. They they tend to treat experts as cattle, as a commodity, 
to be monetized. And, and that's reflected in the interactions that employees at expert networks have and, and operators and, and the way they've structured these businesses. It's a lot of smart, young, hungry graduates doing a ton of cold calling that do not have a deep sense for the nature or the, I mean, the, the mechanics of business, of, of, of the, the practice of investing. They're typically straight out of college and, and typically very bright. And, and there's a boldness that, that is required in cold calling that, you know, the, the former CEO of, you know, you name the business. Um, but there's, there's this, there's this lack of, um, I think that the, the way these businesses are set up and the incentive structures within these businesses, which are really focused around driving volume around finding people quickly. Um, it, it leads to a, a degree of friction with operators. And if you speak to, speak to the supply side in this case, so current and former executives in business, they're, they're contacted by people who do not understand their skill sets. They are bombarded with requests for consultations on you know, a business that they might've worked at 15 years in the past. Um, that it's just, and you could go on and on about the ways in which this volume driven approach translates into a limitation um, that that's created an opportunity, I think, for us. Um, that that, and these blind spots around well, around the way the way the supply side is dealt with. Um, you could look at um, at the way pricing works in the industry. You could look at the way um, hedge funds are served in the industry, long term investors, um, and and I think all of those that 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 it attention to blind spots has been fundamental to our ability to to build in in what is a a relatively mature market yeah finding finding those blind spots seems to be one of the the themes here of this conversation will this has been a lot of fun it's i hope going to be a springboard for people's own exploration into these topics uh you codified some foundational principles that I think are so vital and important, not only in business, but in life. Uh, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, I'm sure people are going to be exploring a lot of the things you brought up. But the final question I would love to ask you is if you could do this long form conversation, something you've done thousands of times with anyone dead or alive, who would you love to sit down with and just ask questions of? Hmm. My God, that's um. I yeah, I'm I'm feeling. You know how you look at the uh, you're in a candy store and you just see a wall of um of sweets, and 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 you're you're dealing with that paralysis and and I think certainly I I uh. I think James Cars is someone I would have loved to know. Uh, finite and infinite games. Someone that that had an acute sense for the the power and the limits of language, um, and and I think his life's work is really 
Um, just just learning from him as to how he saw the world, lived. Um, yeah, J James Cars, I think it might be for now. Probably, if you ask me some other time, it might be someone else, but that's yeah. what's coming to mind. James, James is a beautiful person. I was fortunate enough to have him on the show um, and then was talking with him yes. weeks before he passed away and we were going to do a round two, which uh, I'm very sad, but he is someone um, I have deep admiration for. Um, yes. So I, I love that yes. answer. No, I think I've, a lot of gratitude um, to you for, for I think, bringing that to more people's attention. Um, and I think Simon Sinek wrote a book at some point about him, but it's, uh, yeah, I think really someone that's underappreciated, actually. Yeah, I completely agree. So, Will, this has been so much fun. Uh, I, I know we're going to have in practice linked up more information about you, about the business. Where else can we direct the listeners? What do you want to leave them with? Uh, so we are reasonably active on Twitter, publishing insights from interviews. Um, it's a good sense or a good place to get a sense for what we're up to. Um, obviously, you have the link to the to the website. Um, and um, I would I would say for now, um, that's that's about it. We'll, we'll have a podcast, a more formal podcast up soon. Um, you can listen to some of our content on podcast apps. Uh, we release part of our library on a free tier give people a sense for what we're up to um yeah well as always all that'll be linked up but will oliver i can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there deep gratitude thank you very much you guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there i hope you guys enjoyed it i really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through if you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.